0: This is called Preparing for Heaven, How to Deal with Death, and this is a part of our Sundays in July seminars where we take different seminars about different areas of life, or as I have done last week, a biography, but today we're going to focus on, again, how to deal with death. Now, needless to say, as we begin, preparing for death, how to deal with death, is probably at the same time the most unattractive and yet necessary seminar in all of the seminars that we have. I say it's unattractive because most people do whatever it is that they have to do to pretend that death doesn't exist. And it's necessary because regardless of your stance on death, it is certain to happen. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who once said this as he was nearing his own departure. He said, we do not give enough time to death and are going on, It is a very strange thing, this, the one certainty, yet we do not think about it. We are too busy. We allow life and its circumstances to so occupy us that we don't stop and think. People say about sudden death, it's a wonderful way to go. I have come to the conclusion that this is quite wrong. The hope of sudden death is based upon the fear of death, but death is not something to slip past. It should be victorious, end quote. It was Jonathan Edwards at the age of 18 who, as he was writing his resolutions, was known for saying this in resolution number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death, end quote. So what Lloyd-Jones and, and what Jonathan Edwards are both saying is that thinking about death for the Christian is an important and necessary part of life. And to pretend that it's never going to happen is dangerous. And also, to think about it often is vital. I put those thoughts before you at the outset of our time together because as you listened and evidenced what Lloyd-Jones and Edwards had said, you understand, and that's why you're here, the importance of preparing for your departure. And this is important because you understand that when it comes time to deal with our own dying, we really have to because we can't embrace living until we've embraced dying. We can't really understand the magnitude of the grace given to us until we understand that we too shall go the way of all men. This is true for Christians as well as for unbelievers. But the course of for unbelievers is in a whole different way. I was on a website called thebucket.com. Thebucket.com. And that's a website where you can get your bucket age. And this is how they explain the concept. They write, time is running out but that's nothing new. It's been running out since the moment you were born. No matter how long you will eventually live, what that time is now less than it was when you first started reading this article. We can call this concept of drawing the years down instead of up your bucket age. Everyone has a bucket age. You can figure out yours by subtracting your current age from the age you're statistically likely to live. My life expectancy is 85, this man wrote. I am 60, that makes my bucket age 25. So barring terminal illness, accident, or some other unexpected demise, I have roughly 25 years left on this planet. Calculating your bucket age is one way to maintain this perspective, to remind yourself how precious life is, and to encourage you to make decisions that won't leave you with regrets when your time is actually up. I know it's tough to talk about mortality, but like a vaccine that utilizes elements of the very disease it is protecting you from... Your bucket age can be that dose of reality that kicks you in the gut to start what you need to finish, end quote. Interesting, isn't it? From an unbelieving perspective. You see, whether you're a Christian or you're just a realist, the reality of dying is clearly vital and inescapable certainty for all of us. For the non-believer, it's a way to make sure that you finished all the projects that you promised yourself that you were going to do. But for the believer, it is a way to make sure that your life is right before Christ and others because you will meet him face to face. Now, unless the rapture happens in our lifetime, death is the only certainty remaining for all of us. The only thing that can be certain, save the rapture of Jesus Christ, is that death is here, whether you're a young person or you're a newly married couple. Uh, It doesn't matter if you've recently just lost someone or yourself has just been told by the doctor that your day is quickly approaching, regardless of your status or your strength in this very moment. The only remaining certainty for all of us, save the coming of Jesus, is the coming of our death and the deaths of those we love. And by the way, it's not too late to leave if you want to leave. (laughs) I'm at the seminar, of course, not the planet. But leaving the seminar would be a very big mistake because far from being morbid, far from being morbid, the issue of preparing for heaven, the issue of dealing with both spiritually and temporally your life and death is the most important subject that you could ever consider today or any other day. Now, let me give you an idea of how we're going to proceed this morning so you can kind of prepare yourself for what I'm about to say. I've broken the message down into two sections, two major sections, and each section underneath it has some subpoints. Now, the first section is going to deal with the spiritual considerations, meaning that the areas that you need to think about spiritually concerning death. We're going to think about whether it to be the death of someone you know or, the, or someone that you love nearing their time, or if it's your own death. These are the thoughts that are going to be vital for us to deal with before God. And then after we deal with that section of the seminar, we're going to look at the temporal issues that you need to consider. Those are going to be issues related to preparing for your passing uh, or the passing of a loved one in terms of how to organize one's belongings, your bank accounts, funeral arrangements, etc. So we are going to speak of that. These are the details that most people have not dealt with, and they are spiritually ready to go, but they are not temporally ready to go to be with Christ. In fact, the catalyst for this entire seminar was born out of a project in our congregational care department. And we've been working on this for the past few months, which is to be developing some booklets. We're developing several different booklets, at least two, based on grieving and all the teachings about grieving from our pastor, John MacArthur, and to collect them into one source for help of people that they can go to in time of need. And the other is a pamphlet that's about a checklist, if you will, of what everyone needs to have in order, no matter what your age or your health or your station in life. So those are the two booklets that we've been working on. And as I was preparing for this message Uh, It became more and more apparent to me how greatly we need this. I was talking to my own wife coming home the other night on the phone. And I said to Lori, I said, um, this is going to be the subject of my seminar. And she goes, quote, I don't know what I'd do if you died. I mean, really, I don't know. To which I said, come to the seminar. (laughs) Which did not comfort her for some reason. She said... I really wouldn't know, Tom. I don't know. And that sobered me up a lot because, you see, I want to convince her that coming to this seminar would give her the assurance that she needed, uh, but her sober reminder to me was deeply so heartfelt and so real that I thought coming to this seminar, creating those booklets won't be enough, listen, unless you take the time to do what you need to do to be prepared. You need to take the time. This seminar will not suffice you'll have to do many different things, and all of them we're going to go over today, but it is vital that you do them. It's one thing, as Lloyd-Jones said, to stop and think about these matters. Of course, that's what we're doing today, and it's an entirely different thing to sit down and one by one go through all the details that are required with such thoroughness and such uh, incredible um, intensity that is required. My, my intern, Jonathan, and I have begun this process for the past few months, uh, and actually it's been almost a couple of years that I've been thinking about wanting to do this. We've come to the realization, and you know this too, how horribly unprepared people are for death. As we've been going through this and dealing even with memorials here at Grace Church, spiritually speaking, men and women here at Grace usually are more prepared spiritually, but temporally speaking, most folks, listen, are completely unprepared for their passing, completely unprepared. So if everything goes as planned, We're going to go try and have some helpful resources available to you in the next few months through our church and maybe to other churches as well, resources that will help you navigate through the issues that I'll be speaking of and uh, kind of help you go through uncharted waters, if you will, with a little bit more clarity and direction. So that's the way we're going to proceed today, just so you know upfront what we're going to do. But before we can get to the temporal aspects of passing from earth, let's look at first Number one, the spiritual aspects of preparing for heaven. If you were taking notes, just number one, preparing for heaven. It was commentator Matthew Henry who once said over 200 years ago, he whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet into the grave. He whose head is in heaven need not fear putting his feet into the grave. In other words, the idea of heaven, the realities of heaven, heaven and the longing for heaven, if it so fills the mind and the spirit of one who truly loves Jesus Christ and longs to be with the Savior and the Creator, then the idea of death doesn't produce fear. That's not to say that Christians don't fear the act of dying. That's not to say they don't fear dying itself because it's natural to be afraid of those experiences that you've never entertained the idea of slipping away into eternity many times can bring anxiety with it that one might have as if you were going to dive into a swimming pool for the first time. Though the danger in and of itself is not that great, the experience nonetheless is fearful. And that's very different. But the reality of death, the idea that passing away itself for the believer should have no more sting, as Paul says. I have been in the hospital room of those who are dying who make me feel ashamed of what I believe to be the smallness of my faith. And I say that because when I see the sweetness of their countenance, when I see and sit beside them and comfort them, ironically, they're the ones that comfort me. They're the ones that become my teachers. They're the ones who minister to my fears and my smallness of heart. When I see how they have fully embraced heaven, it's the kind of faith that Martin Lloyd-Jones possessed after He could no longer talk. He wrote to his wife on a piece of paper, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. That's what theologians have called dying grace. When the believer is granted such a beautiful acceptance of their own death that it can only be thought of as a bestowal of grace, it's unmerited favor granted to them by God. And yet I have also set aside bedsides of believers who are troubled in their soul, there still lies some degree of hesitation in them. There's, there's still hesitation about death. There's still as if within them a strong desire for life. And there's such an intense desire to finish what remains to be done. They wrestle with leaving this world. They fight to stay in this world. My dear father was that way. My father was a former underwater demolition team member of World War II he was a hero, he was a scrapper, he was a fighter. So much so that when it came time for him to die, he fought his cancer like a golden glove boxer would do. It It was not a matter of his faith, I believe. It was a matter of instinct, like a man being forced underwater against his will. He fought with everything he had to stay alive. And in many ways, the first part of our time together is going to be focused on that. I say that because we do have the instinct to want to live. Um, men, women, children, those dear souls, they're hesitant about passing. Uh, it's not their time, as we shall say later on and think through those thoughts. They, they understand that the truth that death is going to happen, but they grapple with the experience of death itself. You may be a great theologian. You may be a deacon or a deaconess here at Grace Church. You may have been a Christian the majority of your life, and yet when it comes to this area of dying, you're still very much uncertain about how to face its inevitability. How do you prepare for heaven? Whether you're healthy or young or whether you're sick and old, how do you prepare yourself for heaven? And I believe it boils down to four essential areas that we need to evaluate. This is under the first part when we're just preparing for heaven, four different areas, four different aspects preparing for heaven that need your attention and my attention as well. And by the way, if you're here because you're not stumbling, but because somebody else in your life is unsure. These are also the areas of evaluation that you need to set before them and talk to them about as they go through their doubts. First aspect of preparing for heaven relates to, number one, the necessity of understanding the nature of salvation. Let's just start there. Understanding the nature of salvation. Just so you know, this is gonna be a topical study. So we're gonna look at very many different scriptures that relate to this, but I wanna begin by going first to Ephesians 2, 8 with me. That's a a scripture that's very vital to understand. So if you have your Bible, just open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you know, this very famous verse, verses eight and nine, let me read it to you as you listen. Paul writes, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so no one may boast. Now, it's imperative that we start here as we think about preparing for heaven. I say that because men and women straight at this very one particular point. They approach death, and this is the issue that they deal with. That being that unbeknownst to them, in their own heart, they are in one sense or another still clinging to the idea that somehow, some way, works have saved them. That might not be a conscious thought. That might not be something that they would readily admit to you. But deep down inside, there is a part of them that is clinging to their own works. You might say, how can they be that if they're really Christians? How can they be thinking that? How can anyone who believes in divine choosing, divine election, hold to a works righteousness position? That would rob God of his sovereignty. That would, that would make too much of man and not enough of God. And yet, though those things are true, I have encountered time and time again the idea of works subtly rearing its ugly head during times of just casual conversation with people. There's a man I know who considers himself to be a Christian, though I personally don't know if he is, but I will catch him say from time to time statements that reveal his mind to me. And as you know, over the 4th of July weekend, we recently had a series of earthquakes here in Southern California and shook people's worlds enough to send them to Walmart to buy supplies. (laughs) that's when you know your world's shooken up. And uh, as we were speaking about the quakes, he said in passing, knowing that I'm a pastor at Grace Church, that it reminded him about the inevitability of death and his need to prepare for Christ's judgment. And he said in so many words, you know, I need to live better because you never know. I need to live better because you never know. And in that one moment, he revealed to me the most basic, fundamental belief system that he holds to. And that being is, I need to clean up my life because if you are saved, your life is clean. Let me say that a different way. I need to clean up my life because who knows if you're saved? Who knows? I need to start living more righteously because that's the standard that determines whether you're going to heaven or not. Now in that statement, just follow with me, accidental or not, he's showing me that he believes his salvation is by his works that his hope for heaven after death is going to be determined by his deeds. Now, I don't know his heart, obviously, but that struck me as a contradiction to what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, namely, salvation, very important point, is not determined by works, but ironically, salvation is granted solely by the grace of God given to believing men and women through faith, through faith. This is vital. This is perhaps more vital than anything else we could speak of today that you must understand that your salvation, your hope for heaven has never been gained as a result of your deeds. That your effort, your behavior is never, but the hope for heaven, your hope for heaven, my hope for heaven is completely dependent upon God's unmerited, supernatural imputation of his righteousness into your soul through faith by the merit and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of that culminates of you being in Christ and because of his sacrificial death and perfect life. You didn't deserve heaven. You still don't deserve heaven. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't manipulate the hand of God to love you. You haven't figured out the right way to think and therefore now you're safe. No, if you're a Christian and eternal life is yours, then you have been given this gift, as Paul calls it, by the undeserved action of almighty God. Paul says the same thing earlier in the same epistle, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, he says this in the very beginning of the epistle, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on the beloved. Do you get these words? Chosen, predestined, glory of his grace. All of these ideas are surrounding the concept of God's work in our lives that we can't do anything to gain it for ourselves. Again, he paints the same picture earlier part of chapter two, when he says the same words, that you were dead in your sins. You were walking in the course of this world. And yet he says, by grace, you've been saved. So this is what is so important. It had to be God. It had to be God. In fact, the famous words of chapter two, when it starts with the idea that it had to be God, he says, but God, verse four, being rich in mercy, but God is the one who raised us up. It has to be God, I want you to understand this, who intervenes in your life. It had to be God and God alone that would blow life back into a corpse, which you and I were before salvation. It has to be God and God alone with his abundant mercy and grace and power and strength that could make us alive together with Christ. And again, the language is very specific and it's very important that you understand, God made you alive. God is the one that makes the unbeliever believe. God is the one that changes the dead in sin to become alive in Christ. This is undeniable in scripture. When a man is dead, there's no power in himself to raise himself from the grave. There's no strength. There's no stamina, no effort that you or anyone else can probably assert to lift your own finger to make yourself have life back in your body. That's why the language is so important here. Dead people don't make themselves alive. God makes you alive. God raises the dead. God gives life again. Just to illustrate this, there's a story of the Bible, the gospel of John, and you know it of Lazarus. And Lazarus is a man who died and Jesus knew him and was called by his sisters to come and heal him. But Jesus was too late. And so Lazarus had to lay in the tomb. He was in the grave for four days by the time Jesus comes. And the Bible says, quote, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, for he was still wrapped as they were in the ceremonial wrap of the Jews to preserve the body. This is so significant for us to understand. It is the same way spiritually with men as it was with Lazarus. It's the same for every man, woman, and child. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins must be summoned to life by God. It's not that we're even able to hear the call of God in ourselves because dead people don't hear. God must grant life for the call to be answered. He must open the ears so that the word of life can be received. And so even when we were dead in our transgressions, Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ. And why does God do this? Because the text says God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. So it's entirely the work of God. The work of salvation at the very most fundamental point is a work of God because of his own indescribable mercy and life. And he lovingly blows life into dead hearts. And again, how can he do this? Verse five and verse eight, by grace, by grace, you've been saved by grace. God saves by grace. So understanding the nature of your salvation, first and foremost, the first point of understanding how it is that you're to prepare yourself for heaven, is understand you had nothing to do with your salvation. It is not a result of your works. It is a result of grace of God. Now, let's move to the second area of evaluation you need to look at. The next aspect of preparing for heaven that needs your attention and my attention is not only to understand the nature of salvation, but number two, you need to be evaluating the evidence of salvation, evaluating the evidence of salvation. You want to prepare for heaven. You want to understand how it is that you should prepare yourself to die, to leave this world and to be with Christ, evaluate the evidence of salvation. Now, I understand, listen, after I had just told you how essential it is for the believer to understand that your salvation is completely by grace, it might seem contradictory to say now that there should be evidence of that salvation nonetheless. If you're still in Ephesians 2, look with me at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is a great irony here. It's thrown people for generations. And so we can't come to this point right now and be arrogant or or flippant to this point. This is clear, but it's not clear to everyone. The truth is that though we are not saved by works, It is the evidence of works that gives testimony to us being in Christ. We were, as Paul says here, created for good works. Let me expand this for you. We were first brought to God, chosen by God, granted salvation by faith, made alive together with Christ, having been dead in our trespasses and sins. And then once we were made alive, we were given internally a predisposition to want to manifest the work that he had deposited in us. As a result of the work of salvation towards us, we now by nature desire to bear fruit that demonstrates his work in us. Out of gratitude, out of love for him, for saving our souls, all believers now long to be like him, to live like him, to resemble him, to please him, to give evidence to others and themselves the gift of his grace in their life. That is evidence of the salvation within you. Our pastor, John MacArthur, has so often said that it's not perfection in your life, but direction in your life. I don't know if you ever heard him say that it's not perfection, but direction. It's now not the fact that that you desire a perfect life. You do want that, but it's the fact now that you desire to restrain your lips. You want to confess your wrong. You want to pursue holiness, You want to cast aside past life and live righteously in the present age. It's this idea of, though I've been saved by grace, I want to live unto God as manifested in my works. Stay in the book of Ephesians for a second. Go to chapter 4 and verse 22, where Paul, again, another very famous section of this book, says this starting in verse 22. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And what's that saying? What does he mean by that? There is a time in the life of every believer, a recognition of the fact that they are no longer what they have been, right? There is a moment where you recognize, I am not anymore that which I was. And Paul says here to capture this thought, he says to, let's put on an analogy, analogy of putting on, renewing, and putting off. You put on, you renew, and you put off. He's speaking of, in putting off an old man who wears a jacket of of death. And he's speaking of that he still sports that jacket of sin and he clings to that that wardrobe, if you will, with all his might. But once that dead man becomes alive, he is able to take off that clothing that is rotting and horrid. He is no longer to be clothed with sinful habits and lifestyle, the same mindset that had once controlled him. He is to cast it off from him as far as he can possibly throw it and have no longer anything to do with the man that he once was. As you know, or may not know, the Roman emperors were renowned for their cruelty, hideous forms of punishment. And of course, we're familiar with crucifixion. That was one form of their punishment. But there's another one maybe you're not aware of, and that is that they would bind the corpse of a murderer, the murderer's victim, to the back of the murderer. They would bind the one that they murdered to the one that murdered them. And under penalty of death, no one was allowed to remove the corpse from the body of the condemned person eventually the victim's body started to decompose and swell and ooze and rot and the death of that man would seep into the body of the murderer. I tell you that because that could be very likely what Paul is referring to here, this gruesome practice of carrying that dead body, much like a man who has been condemned and and cannot cast off this old man. He's saying your life was rotten and you need to throw it away. You need to separate yourself from that old man and you must renew your mind. You must bathe it in the newness of the word of God so that you might now clothe yourself with a garment of holiness and a changed life. This is very, very important that you understand. I tell you this because my friends, when you or your loved one is nearing that point of death, when your diagnosis has been given and the clock has started ticking, your assurance becomes the most precious thing to you in the world. Your assurance is the most precious thing you could ever hold. The fact that you realize That your salvation has come to you by grace, at the same time realizing that you must change yourself in the inner man, that you no longer were what you once were, that no longer could you say that you wanted the things that you once wanted, that though you might still admire the suit and slacks, if you will, that you once wore, you cannot bear to walk in them again. You cannot bear to have anything to do with them, though men and women may always be tempted to return to the corpse in their mind. But once that you are fundamentally been renewed, you never succumb to those same sins that once dominated your life. You hate them now, and you're ashamed of that clothing, and you resist them imperfectly, though you might, even That clothing which you once wore, now you long with all your heart again to be clothed with Christ. Instead, you see in yourself a love for God's word. You start to see changes in you, a love for even the hardest truths. There cannot be something that comes from the Bible that is too hard for you. You embrace it. You love it. You might find it difficult and hard sometimes to swallow, but you understand it and want to know it with all your heart. You want a clean mind. You recognize that your mind is filthy and that can't stay that way. And you know, I need renewing. And then most of all, you long for these new clothes of holiness, and you desire righteousness in your mind and you fling away the dirty clothes and you bathe in the word and you dress yourself in a way that would honor Christ. Look, it doesn't matter how successful you are. It will not matter if you traveled to Rome or own a home or associated with the rich and famous or achieved your dreams. Though these things in and of themselves are not bad. It's just hay and stubble just hay and stubble. But what will matter will be your assurance of being in Christ as evidenced by your ability to evaluate your life and realize either you desire holiness, you long for righteousness, you hate sin, or you're indifferent to those things that manifested your faith to be real. If you are indifferent to those things, there is terror in you and there is doubt in you and there is hopelessness in you. But if you see in yourself a love and a softening towards those things that are eternal, then your assurance is sweet. We have to be balanced. We cannot be those people who trust in works because of the example of Matthew 7. Remember it says, in the example of Lord, he says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform many miracles? And then Christ says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen, they believed, people believe, that their religious good works guaranteed them a relationship with Christ. And yet Christ himself says, what you practiced before people, the people of God, especially, couldn't make up for what you practiced when no one else was looking. The unrighteousness, you be warned that God will not be mocked. You must be honest with yourself. You must be tremendously honest with yourself about who you are and what you're doing and what your behavior manifests and what it gives testimony to. There is another essential area of evaluation you need to look at, at the next aspect of preparing for heaven, and that is Not only did your attention need to be understanding the nature of your salvation and examining the evidence of your salvation, but now, number three, you need to be celebrating the end of your salvation, celebrating the end of salvation. Now, what does that mean? It has been said that, biblically, it is the most accurate thing to say that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We've been saved in our justification, we're being saved through our sanctification, and we will be saved finally to live eternally in our glorification. There is an end to this act of salvation. And the end or the goal, maybe is a better word, if you will, must ever be before you as you come face to face with death. You must be understanding the goal of what it is that God has placed in your heart. Go to 1 Peter, uh, a little famous section of 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says these words that really come to us with great power, especially as you contemplate heaven. He says, verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now, I want you to look at me with me real quick at verse four. Look look at that again. That this living hope that all believers have through Christ is connected to this inheritance, which is imperishable. While, While the word here, living, is a verb, in this context, it's used as an adjective expressing a vital and dynamic aspect of the hope that God gives to every believer in Christ. Living is the quality of the hope believers now have in Christ. Living is a present tense, which means that now our hope is possessing as an abiding quality. We possess a living hope that is never extinguished by troublesome circumstances in the same way as living waters never cease to flow from a fresh perpetual spring. Because our hope, listen, is not a principle, but a person, Our hope is a principle and not a person. That person is living because he has been resurrected from the dead. And because he lives eternally, we too live eternally. That is our sure, steadfast, unchangeable living hope. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, what a blessed hope this is that though we fall asleep, We shall surely wake again, and when we awaken, it will be the likeness of the great head of the family, and we ourselves shall be heirs of an inheritance, which there will be no sin and no corruption. That inheritance is kept for us, and we are kept for it. So the double keeping makes it doubly sure, happy are the people to whom these verses apply. It was a few months ago that a dear, very precious saint in our church came to me and lent me a book by Jonathan Edwards about heaven. And she said she wanted me to preach on heaven soon because she knew she would be there soon. In fact, I know she's here with us today, and I'm so thankful. At the time, I didn't know if I could actually do that because I'm preaching through the book of Proverbs, and I wasn't sure how it could happen. And then when these seminars came up, I thought, this is wonderful. I'm going to be able to do that for her in this way. It's here that in his work that she gave me, Jonathan Edwards speaks to this end, this goal of salvation by our glorification, becoming more than anything else, an understanding, listen, that heaven is not just a place where harps are played and eternal bliss reigns, but rather heaven first and foremost is the place where we shall see God, where we shall see God. Edwards writes this, There even in heaven dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There God dwells, the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death for men. There dwells the great Mediator, through whom all the divine love is expressed towards men, and whom the fruits of that love have been purchased. And through whom they are communicated and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all God's people. There Christ in both his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on the same throne with the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love in whom every essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love. And by those immediate influence of all holy love is shed abroad in the hearts of all the saints on earth and in heaven. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there is glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell as it were to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love, End quote. No one writes like that anymore. As we contemplate what it is for a believer to die, and we understand why the apostle John might have recorded for us what he heard and a voice from heaven. As he heard in Revelation 14, 13, he said, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord. Why? Because as we enter that stage where life is escaping us, as we realize that the end of our salvation is near, that the goal of our entire life that is not a place, but a person, that Jesus Christ shall be the one that we behold forever and ever, then joy floods the heart and purpose becomes clear. There was a few years ago a Master's Seminary graduate who had been with us, who had gone out to get some donuts with his children and a friend. And it was at that time that they experienced a massive traffic accident that graciously spared his children, but tragically took his life. And as he felt his passing, coming upon him, he looked to his little ones, ministering to them in his last breath, and he said, it's okay, I'm going to be with Jesus. Now, he didn't comfort those precious little children saying heaven awaited him, though it did. He comforted those beloved by saying the Savior awaited him that the glory of the Lord would usher him into his presence saying, well done, my good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. It was the apostle Paul who said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The goal or the end of our salvation is God himself. So the question that should consume us as we face death both once it's near and especially when it's far away, especially if we believe it to be far away, is always this. Do I understand that the end of my salvation is not just merely a mansion in glory, not merely an entrance into the kingdom in and of itself, but that the end is to be with my God and to enjoy him forever and ever. There's another aspect of evaluation that you need to look at the last aspect that I have here under preparing for heaven. And that is not only do you need to have understanding about the nature of salvation, examining the evidence of salvation and celebrating the end of salvation, but number four, you need to be trusting the process of salvation, trusting the process of salvation. There was a man who was a part of our fellowship a couple of years ago, who in his forties had discovered that he was dying of cancer. He once had a very muscular frame and had shrunken into a suit of skin that clearly no longer fit him. His wife and children tried to support him, but his anger and his unforgiveness for past sins against him consumed him as helpless at the mercy of the caretakers who were so graciously looking after him. I had been called to minister to him by his family. And so I would sit with him and reason with him and talk about his attitude and his resentments as he faced what seemed to be certain death. At the time, I had just finished preaching through the entire book of Job. And so I began to share with him what I had learned over the 60 plus messages that I had preached. Namely, that though Job was a righteous man, even though Job did not deserve to have his possessions to be stolen, his servants murdered, his children killed, his, his didn't deserve anything to bring about the horrible skin disease that he had that consumed his body, after 37 chapters of asserting his case and being cross-examined by his peers, God appears on the stage. And for the next five chapters, if you know the book, never once mentions why he allowed Job to suffer. He never once mentioned Satan. He never once mentions why he had lowered the hedge of protection around him. He never once explains anything to Job, except to say over and over again that he is God and that Job didn't possess the ability to grasp the purposes of the Almighty, even if it was explained to him. He told him in many different ways, the same answer, I am God, I am God. I am God. I tell you this because it was then in those moments that this dear man started to soften. And it's in those moments he started to forgive. And he started to realize that even the way he would die should be an act of worship before God. He was about to meet him face to face. He should die worshiping that the answer of why we die far exceeds the fact that sin has entered the world and with sin comes death, though that is true. The answer to why we die is about trusting the God we love more than the life we lived. Trusting the God we loved more than the life we lived. The idea of trusting the process of our salvation as I've termed it is just an attempt to address the way we approach the end, how to approach the end, the way believers are called to trust God even in the last stages are completing our salvation. It was John Wesley once speaking of the Calvinistic Methodist of his day. He said, we die well, we die well. In other words, the differences between those who love God, trust God and understand the word of God and those that didn't is that we die well. We come to the end of our days, not only surrendering to his purposes, but inviting his glory. There's an autobiography of Lyman Beecher, a minister from the 1700s, and he refers in his book to the death of his wife, Roxana Beecher. And in that account, she tells her husband that her view and anticipations of heaven have been so great that she could hardly sustain it. She said that if they had been increased, she would have been overcome by joy it has been said that men may live well who do not die victoriously. Men may live well who do not die victoriously. So often men, even Christians, act like the character Hamlet, who famously said, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. In other words, because he doubted what laid before him, the idea of taking his own life, which was the context in the play, it scared him, it frightened him, and it encouraged him to endure the pain of this life rather than to go to the life afterwards, which he did not understand. It was John Piper who said, I don't so much pray that my death will be without pain, but that it will be without doubt. I pray not so much that my death will be without pain, but it will be without doubt. You see, the Christian man and woman must look at their thoughts about death. You have to think about how you think about death. And if this life, my dear brothers and sisters, have become too sweet, if this life is too precious, then you need to think about, all of us do, the words of Paul in the book of Philippians as he starts to make thoughts that, confront us, and yet at the same time, encourage us. He says in chapter one, verse 23, I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, enjoying the faith so that your proud confidence may be and abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you. What does he preface all of these thoughts with? Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. But if I am to live on in this flesh, it will be for labor. What's he saying in verse 23 here? I am hard pressed. I have a desire to be with Christ, to depart from this world. For that is, he says, very much better. So if you really want to know what I'd like to do, I'd like to die. If you really want to know what my, my desire in this moment is, is to leave. But he says, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So I know I shall remain and continue for your joy and faith. He says, my feeling is this, the Lord is going to let me live because you need me. But for the time being, he says, I'd rather die if I had my choice. Whatever the plan is, I'll leave it to him. I'd rather be with him. Our pastor, John MacArthur, speaks to this point, And he says this, quote, let's personalize, okay? Look at the verse, verse 21. Take out the word Christ and put a blank in there. Now, fill in the blank. For me, living is blank. Wealth? If living is wealth, then dying is what? Not gain, but loss. If living is prestige, then dying is loss. If living is fame, then dying is loss. If living is power, then dying is loss. If living is possessions, then dying is loss. If living is looking for prestige in the world, you lose it when you die, you're gone. If you're looking for fame, you lose it when you die, you're forgotten. If you're looking for power, you lose it when you die, you're lifeless in this world. If you're looking for possessions, they're all gone when you're dying, it's over. The only thing that can be put in there to make the last part sense is Christ. If you put in that blank anything but Christ, the last word has to be loss, okay? Only Christ makes dying gain. Only Christ, otherwise it's loss, end quote. So we have to say, dear friends, well, I have Christ on my blank, but if you look carefully, you might have written Christ plus wealth you might've written Christ plus power, Christ plus possessions. For me, living is Christ, not plus anything else. If it's living for Christ plus possessions, then death is gain and loss. But if living for Christ, then death is all gain. That's where we need to be. That's where our whole focus needs to be. So to prepare for heaven spiritually, you need to understand the nature of salvation, examine the evidence of salvation, celebrate the end of salvation, and trust the process of salvation. That much we've covered. So that ends the first portion of our Preparing for Heaven seminar. That's the spiritual side of preparation. But now we need to ask the question of what about the temporal side? What about matters here on earth? That means we need to finally transition away from preparing from heaven to what I call now passing from earth. We're going away from preparing for heaven to now passing from earth. You see, there is a shift here. If you haven't noticed, we're going from heavenly perspective to an earthly one. Why is that? Why have we to do that? Because as some have pointed out over the centuries, and you've heard this, sometimes Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? Some of you had, there's a clever way of saying that sometimes believers are so focused on the spiritual side of life, the heavenly concerns that they are completely negligent concerning the day-to-day earthly aspects of living. Once I visited the Getty Museum years ago, and they had a section in the museum of Roman busts, the sculptures that were all pretty much the same, all from the first century. And that is, until you came to those that were depicting Christians. And if you've never seen this, it's quite a sight. All of the Christian bust, all of the statues that were supposedly from first century Christians had something in common. All of their eyes were focused upward. That the artist had understood by understanding Christians in his day that they were so heavenly focused that even making an artistic representation of them had them looking heavenward. That's profound in one way, but it's also very challenging. Very challenging. Yes, we are to be a people who long for heaven because that's where our God reigns. And and he is present in a way in heaven that he is present better and more special than any other place. Yes, we are glorious as that sounds. And we want to have him and to be with him. Listen, our responsibilities on earth are still important. There's another old saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I wanna go over now for a little four action steps, maybe only three here, that I must think to prepare our time and our passing from earth. And please note, I am very intentional when I say passing, though we do die. Though the Bible says Christ died, though Bible says also, speaking of believers, that though we die, we live if we believe in Jesus Christ as the resurrection, we also pass from earth to heaven. And in this passing, we need to think about a few truths. And so the first action step, if you will, from the earthly perspective is this. Number one, you need to grasp the reality of passing. Grasp the reality of passing. This might seem redundant, but The nature of all teaching is repetition, just so you know. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We must face this fact. And it is not an easy fact to face. Adam and Eve died. Noah died. Abraham died. Moses died. David and Solomon died. Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah died. All the apostles died. Even Jesus died. Lazarus died, was resurrected, and then died again. What a bummer. Elijah and Enoch didn't die, but the odds of God taking you to heaven without dying can only be summed up in two words, the rapture. That's it. Other than that, my dear, dear friends, we who are all here today will die. There are today, according to my best research, 7,750,000,000 people on the planet as we speak. 7,750,000,000. And in 120 years, each person alive today will have died. 8 billion people will have died. The baby being born today in 120 years, as well as the oldest person in the room. That's the reality of life. Hebrews 9, 27, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Now, this is a very short point, but it's a necessary one to make. Since this is the truth, since you and I and our parents and our children all must go the way of all men, doesn't this compel ourselves to prepare ourselves not only spiritually, but physically for that reality? In other words no matter what we allow ourselves to be occupied with in this life we must face the fact that the here and now is to be used to prepare for the there and then the here and thou here and now must be used to prepare for the there and then which brings us quickly to our second action step because since we have grasped the reality of our passing now shouldn't we number 2 consider the implications of passing Let's consider the implications of passing we have gripped, been gripped by the reality of passing, now let's consider the implications of passing. Now, I want you to take a moment with me and consider something. As this point suggests, life will be very different for those who love you, for those who are responsible for you once you're gone. The implications of your leaving to go to heaven makes the people who are left with a very great burden. There are implications that you and I must consider concerning those we leave behind and our duty to them while we live to make our passing as little difficult for them as possible. I will confess to you, I have spilt tears preparing this message for you today because like all messages, this is for me as well. This is not just some academic treatise. I cannot dodge this bullet. I cannot pretend that my wife and my children are immune to this reality of my passing, I must prepare myself so that they are not caught off guard because I'm convinced myself that death is years and years away. Being in the position that I am here at Grace Church, I've seen too many times, over and over again, a wife completely bewildered as now she faces a barrage of responsibilities left to her because her husband felt his passing was far off, only to die too quickly, as they say. You know, we just announced the funeral for a man coming up this week who was only 52 years old and he had a heart attack. A great, renowned world musician. And now he is with the Lord, but the result is there still has much to be accomplished. You know, when the Lord takes someone we love at a young age, we usually say they were taken before their time, don't we? They were taken before their time. It's a phrase that we often use to express the idea that deep down inside, we believe everyone we love deserves to live a long and prosperous life, even though that's not really true. We don't deserve to live a long life any more than we deserve to live a pain-free life or a sorrow-free life. Nothing in the Bible says that we deserve to have our lives prolonged with prosperity. No, the Bible only addresses what tends to happen, not what happens it was Moses, if you remember, in Psalm 90:10, he says, "As for my the days of my life they contain 70 years or due to strength 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away." You see, we aren't promised long life. But Moses is saying that even in his day the length of life for most people, as it is now is about 70-80 years. Give or take a few. That's the average. He doesn't say that we're owed that length of days, but he only says that what we see usually occurring in life is 70, 80 years, that's all. So when it comes to someone who's passing before their time, as we say, then we feel sorrow because not only have they passed, not only are they no longer with us and we miss them, but because we feel God took them too soon. We feel as if the Lord plucked them before his time or her time, but that's not true. God allows, listen, each man, woman, and child to die at the exact day, the exact hour, the exact minute that they were already scheduled to die, planned by God, even before the day they were born. And yet, because statistics are that most people, the average of people will live longer than 70 years. We have a blind spot. And we pretend that we are guaranteed to live until the ripe old age of 80 or 90, but that's not simply for us to know. That's why taking ownership, listen, over the details of your passing while you're young, while you are lucid, while you can think and plan and consider the ramifications of your life and death is vitally important. There's a group of widows here at Grace Church that meet together. And I attended a meeting that they had only to hear them going over this exact point. And though they loved their husbands, though they missed them deeply, there was also in the room a very clear bewilderment concerning the state of disarray that they had left them in because, if I may say, their pride, the pride concerning death. Pride says, sometimes, especially in gentlemen, I'm going to pull through this. I'm strong as I was then now. I I can do this. As soon as this gets out of my way, I'm going to resume my life as it once was. But whether it's pride or fear or denial, whatever the term you might want to call it, the implications are the same. You have left your wife and your children the burden that they shouldn't have to bear. And I say this to the men, even though the ladies, this could be true of you as well. When we think of 1 Timothy 5, 8, where it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, we usually think of what? Providing food and shelter and protection while we're alive. But may I suggest to you that we also provide for our own by planning for the future? Planning for the future is providing for your household. Which brings us to the next action step for us as we plan our passing from this world, we must grasp the reality of passing, consider the implications of passing. And now number three, plan the details of passing. Plan the details of passing. Now this is where it's going to get really uncomfortable, which is really something to say when you have a seminar on death. It hasn't been uncomfortable yet, uh, but it's very, very necessary. You most likely don't want to think about your final days but planning for them now is helpful to those that love and care for you, making sure that they know that your wishes are respected and they are taken care of. Now, I have before you now some questions to ask yourself as you plan for the details facing your life's in. And if you're taking notes, I might go too fast, and so you can just relax and listen and know. You can listen to this message again when it comes online, and it'll be at gracechurch.org probably sometime next week where you could slow it down and kind of get them more specifically. And as I've said, we also have a booklet for you Not today. We're still working on it, but it will be coming in the future with more information. So that will be available to you. And even before our booklet comes out, if you need any assistance in thinking through these things, then we're here to help you to go through that process. Again, I can't say it emphatically enough. If you want to be thinking through these details, you need to do it before you get sick. You need to do it before you start to decline. While you're still fit and clear-headed and have your wits about you, the earlier in your marriage, the better. The earlier in your career, the better. This isn't just information for senior citizens, because even though the need seems greater as you age, the irony is your ability to process the information is lessened. So begin the sooner, not later. Now, even though this is going to be far from exhaustive, Uh, you're going to feel exhausted as I go through it. Uh, So just listen and kind of get the sense of the magnitude which lies before you as you plan the details. Let's give you some questions here that you can think through first concerning your health care, just questions concerning your health care. And as I unfold all these questions, I know you're going to feel the weight of this, and I understand you're going to sense that you need to maybe get out of this room right now and run to the nearest uh, uh, help. But I would just assure you that there is going to be help, and I'll give you some direction in a moment. Number one, who would you choose to make health care choices on your behalf as you were dying? If you're unable to do it yourself, who would you choose to do that? You need to make that clear. Have you asked your doctor about end-of-life care? Would you want aggressive, curative treatments, or would you focus still be instead on comfort care? Have you reviewed what NDR, do not resuscitate, entails? Have you thought through that? Would you want to be at home? or in a hospital, or in a hospice facility in the last days? Think about that. What is your desire? Do you have an advance directive spelling out your wishes for end-of-life health care? Here are some questions concerning your finances. Have you given a family member or a trusted friend durable power of attorney to pay bills and make financial choices on your behalf if you're unable to do it yourself? The executor can do this, or your executress, I guess you say, could do this. Do you have an up-to-date list of all your assets and debts, uh, debts? Do you have an up-to-date list of all your assets and debts? Does the person you have chosen have access to your bank and investment accounts? Do you know how often that is not the case? Does the person that you have chosen know where to find all your legal documents? What does that mean? Birth certificate. Social Security, driver's license, health insurance, life insurance, military documents, advanced directive, last will and testament, living trust, etc., etc. It's hard for me to find sometimes a stamp, much less my social security card. Right? Is this person that you have chosen listed as authorized to access your safe deposit box? Do they have a key if you can't do it yourself? Are your assets titled so that they will be dispersed in the way that you wish them to be dispersed? If your assets are a part of your estate, have you talked with your lawyer to make sure this is clearly stated in your trust or will? Do beneficiaries of your pensions, retirement accounts, think about it, 401ks, IRAs, Social Security, life insurance policies, have facts have the facts they need to claim the benefits after your passing will that just be in probate how is that all going to work out here are some questions concerning your family and estate is your last will and testament or your living trust up to date reflecting your current wishes have you chosen an executor who is honest and able to deal with legal and financial matters does the person you have chosen have all the facts and the documents needed to settle your estate? Have you chosen a guardian for your minor children, if any? Have you arranged for the care of your special needs child, if that applies? Have you talked with a lawyer about avoiding probate through living trust? That's a very, very important thing. Have you children agreed on who gets which special objects that concern them, furniture, mementos, heirlooms? I have been with people as their parent was dying, and they had already started to become not only emotional because of that, but because they knew the nature of their brothers and sisters, and that they were going to swarm down on the estate like vultures and take everything that was precious. And their weeping was both cited of sadness for the leaving of mother and for what was about to happen. In thinking through these things, you may want to enlist, as you probably can feel already, uh, an expert, someone who does this for a living. I've spoken to one of our members, Anthony Sicaro, who directs people through their estate planning. I highly suggest meeting with him. Uh, Lori and I are doing this. Uh, this is He works for Providence Financial and Insurance Services. This is what he gives you to work through. This is not an endorsement in the sense that the church doesn't benefit from this or anything else, but he is one of many people that you could go to. He's trustworthy to start this process. You've got to start somewhere. How can you begin if you don't begin at the beginning? Here's some other questions concerning just your peace of mind, your peace of mind. Have you made plans for your funeral? Have you made plans for the funeral? And if so, are your plans and preferences in writing and available? People have them in writing, but they don't know where they are. And they've lost them, and their spouse finds them years later. I didn't know you wanted Amazing Grace, Song. (laughs) Everybody sings Amazing Grace, so that's, you know. (laughs) Do you have unfinished business in your relationships? Personally, rifts that you need to make mends with, friends or relatives, make this a time of reflection and mending relationships and giving closure to life. Do and say the things that have not been said, and prepare for your going home to be with the Lord with joy, unlike the man who did pass away as he was wrestling in my in my midst, but who finally came to terms with his unforgiveness and entered into the presence of the Lord with a clean heart? Do you have something that you need to say or write down that future generations will know you better by? Are you to be buried? Are you to be cremated? Have you planned for a location? Listen, a burial casket plot are going to cost your family around on the low end $8,000. So You need to plan for that. And that's the low end, and I don't even know if that still holds true. I have unfortunately experienced many times children and the remaining spouse looking at me with shock in their eyes, saying, Not only did my loved one's death overwhelm me, but they didn't leave any indications of what they wanted. There are no burial sites purchased, no casket, no nothing. And so now we are scrambling to find the money, the location, the time at the point we're grieving the most. Listen to me. If you don't plan for your passing, then you're forcing the ones you love to do that. If you don't plan for your passing, then you are forcing those who are most precious to you to do that. And that is a burden that they shouldn't have to shoulder. Do that for them. Don't have them do that for you. Now look, maybe that's where you're at right now. Maybe you can't plan for your own death right now because you need to prepare for the passing of one of your loved ones. Maybe this is something you can't do for yourself because that's exactly what's happened. Now you're trying to do a massive amount of work and decision-making, and you haven't had any help about this at all. In that case, um, really, listen, you need to sit down with one of us here at Grace Church and your family members, and we need to go through the details that are listed here and all the more knowing that at least if this gives you encouragement, if you're a member here of Grace Community Church, uh, the memorial service, uh, the bulletins, the pastoral care, all of that is free to you as just being a part of our flock. And we are privileged to do that. That is the privilege of our heart to care for you. But the avalanche of all the other details has to be done by you. So be prepared, be prepared. If you are in the throes of that now as I speak, I want to give you just a brief but important point that comes to me very often, and that is, and I say this, it seems like a non-related issue, but get duplicates of death certificates. Just so you know, it's been told me more than a few times, get duplicates of death certificates. The quantity varies. uh, Ten could be more. You can go to the funeral director, might help you handle this. Uh, The statistics are every single thing whether it is from the city or state or uh, social security, so many insurance, everything will end up asking for a uh, death, death certificate. And if you don't have that, it goes on and on and on, and the process is endless. So I just tell you that in our remaining time, which brings us to the last action step for us as we plan for the passing of this world we must grasp the reality of passing, consider the implications of our passing, plan the details of our passing, and now just very briefly, revisit the decisions of passing. Revisit the decisions of passing. All that means is just, after you've done all of this work, after you have decided the when and the where and the how of who, everything we've addressed, and remember to revisit those decisions as the day draw it near. sometimes, Though you've made these decisions, something's changed. Uh, Sometimes your wishes have changed. Sometimes the person that you wanted to handle, the affairs has changed. Just make sure that you plan to check back on what that you have decided every year to make sure that you still agree with yourself because sometimes you can change your mind. And you know, all of these things are necessary even if they feel uncomfortable. But the truth of the situation is this, meeting together with those who you love, to plan your leaving this earth can be such a time of sweetness and such a time of love. You might be very surprised what a blessing that will come to you because you took the time to be prepared and you came to it with such a heart of wanting to help them about your leaving. I think we're never more real about life than we consider our death. There's no way. We have come into this world with an awareness there is something more than this life. We know that we were created with something that Solomon calls eternity in our hearts in the book of Ecclesiastes. Eternity is in our hearts. It's the same thing that the ancient Egyptians knew when they buried their pharaohs. They would bury them with boats so that they could go down the, the Styx River because they believed there was a life afterwards. Young Indian braves would be literally buried with their ponies, believing that they would ride with them in the next life. So as we sit here, We know that this world is not our home, but that we were designed as eternal beings to live eternal states in an eternal place, either heaven or hell. You and I will live forever and ever in a resurrection body. The question is, are you with God? And are you prepared? In the gospel of John, there's a time in the 14th chapter where Jesus has gathered his disciples together for what's known as the Lord's Supper. And he did so with the intention of making sure that they knew his time had come. He gathered them together so that they knew he was going to leave. He was very open to them, even though they were completely caught off guard. And so he speaks to them with these powerful words that ends our time this morning. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of just being honest about what lies before each and every one of us and each and every person that we know and everyone that we love. And that is that from the moment that we have been born, we are preparing to die and that death is inevitable and it is something that you have prepared us for through salvation and that we know we have eternal life though we die if our faith is in Christ. I pray that this was helpful to those who are preparing for heaven, that they have looked at the facts of their life, that they understand that they can't be saved by works, it's all by grace, that there needs to be evidence of that in their life. And as they look at their life, they see the the direction, but not the perfection of their holy desires, that they've come to a place where they understand that the goal of salvation is Jesus Christ, you, O God, the triune God, that heaven is less a place, but really a person, the person of our most holy Lord. And that as they prepare for this, that then they see also the temporal side, the, the excruciating reality that death is certain, and the implications are that our earthly life does not go away. Our belongings and all that we have must be accounted for. And more importantly, the people that we leave behind need to not be left behind in a cloud or in doubt but to have clarity and assurance. So we ask that the details that we just briefly brought up would spur the minds of those that are here to think about all that they must accomplish and all that they must start to do, help them to be motivated to do those things, not out of fear, not out of a a sense of dread, but out of a sense of holy duty before you and the ones they love. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen.